Thanks for checking out another episode of the Armed and Ready podcast. I am your host, Jason Wood, the VA loan guy. Today we have an awesome guest with us, Nick Popovich. He is a Silver Star recipient and a Marine Corps veteran. Come check it out. Welcome to the Armed and Ready podcast. I'm your host, Jason Wood, the VA loan guy. We thank you for stopping by again to see us. We have an awesome guest with us today, Marine Corps veteran Nick Popovich, and we're going to get into his story and his background, what he's up to today. So, uh, Nick, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me aboard. <clears throat> yeah, man. So, um, you have a great story. You're pretty well-known uh, Marine veteran, um, but we want to hear about your past. We want to know what you, what you did and how, how you got to where you are today. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, your Marine Corps experience and, and what was your deciding factor to, to join the Marines? You know, what, what pushed you to get in the military, right? Not everyone does that. I, I never even thought about joining the Marines. I, was, I wanted to be a scientist when I was in high school. I was kind of a nerdy guy. And uh, you know, in my college life, wasn't, didn't have the money to go to college. So a lot of times when people say the guys who joined for college money, I was one of those guys. And uh, a Marine recruiter just happened to call me. And I, I, I didn't want to join the Marines. I just wanted kind of an easy road. And he said, well, just come hear what I have to say. So I did. I listened to what he had to say. And I thought, there's no way I can get through this. And he said one thing to me that I never forgot. He said, if you don't give up on us, we will never give up on you. And that, that, that impacted me more than anything else he could have said. That's cool. I raised my right hand and uh, I ended up going to college. But it was 20 years later after a career in the Marine Corps. <laughs> right. And so... You're in the Marine Corps, so you had you had a pretty badass job. I mean, you're you're um, you're in tanks. Right? Oh, I loved it. Loved that job. It was. Uh, I got it just out of sheer luck. I, I joined back when they had something they called a co uh, combat arms option, and so you just you, it was kind of an open contract, except for you were going to be some sort of trigger puller, and that's the one I got assigned to. I didn't really think much of it one way or the other until I got out in the Fleet Marine Force, and then when I got out there and I seen the tank commanders commanding those tanks. I thought they were just the coolest guys I'd ever seen, and I wanted to be one of them. And that's that's it's kind of what started my passion for it. Yeah, I think I think tanks are cool. I mean, I think when I think of military, I think of like all the badass jobs, right? Like fighter pilot, tank commander, Navy SEAL, special forces. Like that, I think you know, kind of Hollywood has you know made those the cool the cool jobs in the military. Even though there's tons of really important jobs, but it's awesome that you got to, to like. Be in tanks, like so. Tell me about driving a tank, man. What's that? Like? <laughs> well, that's what you said. The funny part is when people say, uh, you know, when they hear tanks, the first thing they say is driving a tank, and uh, that's the first job you do. That's when you're brand new, fresh out of the tank school. Okay. So it's kind of the junior guy, but it, it is fun. When I did it, I was I was 18 years old. I was doing it on mainland Japan. Was my first duty station, and I would climb into that that driver's compartment. I just felt like this this is just the best job I could ever have. I just it was amazing. And uh, it is a lot of fun. I start out on an M60 tank, which is an old Vietnam era tank, and uh, not very—they're uh, not very automotively impressive. They're—they're they're slow. They're lumbering. They're very, um, <laughs> very, very rough ride. And then good one to learn on, right? Good one to learn on. Well, they're great because it takes all four limbs to drive. So you're—you know—you're shifting and driving and gas pedaling and braking and steering. So it was—it was a lot of fun. And very challenging. And then uh, we went to the new one, the M1A1, which is, <laughs> it, it is literally like going from a skateboard to a Cadillac. I mean, it, it, it is very automotively impressive. It can jump, you know, it does, Whoa. you know, it, it, it really gets up and goes. It goes uh, faster than you ever want to go in a 68-ton piece of gear. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. very fast. 
How's, how's breaking when you're going fast in one of those? Oh, it can stop on a dime too. Really? It, it, you, you can throw the you can throw the tank commander and the loader out of the turret. I mean, you can it, it will stop that fast. Oh wow! It's it's automotively amazing. It, it can go up a sixty degree grade and you, it'll upshift. So when you're driving, can do you have any visibility out of the tank? Really? <laughs> you do, and mostly the tank commander will assist the driver. The driver will do most of the driving, but when you get in tight places or things that he may not be able to see, because he's looking from that much higher than you're you're sitting off the ground right now. Right. Whereas the tank commander is ten feet up in the air, he can see things that the driver can't, and so you'll assist through the intercom. But uh, the driver, you really can't see very well. When we work in really close with like infantry and stuff like that, a lot of times I'll brief them beforehand. <laughs> We're really not as in control of this thing as you may think, so give, <laughs> give it a little bit of room. You know what I mean? Um, you have any good, any funny stories from driving the tank? Uh, just with with the new one, with the M1A one, it is so automotively advanced. It just really goes fast, and it was just a training op. We're out there in Twenty Nine Palms and. Uh, we're driving along. I let the rest of the rest of calm get way out ahead of us. And I had a really good driver, this kid named Perez, and he's and he's going. And there's this perfect storm of things that can happen because the the suspension is very very advanced. But if you have like a dip bump, dip bump, dip bump, it'll 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 compress it, expand it, compress it, expand it, compress it, and then launch it. It's just like the perfect combination. And it'll take those 68 tons and throw them up in the air about six feet off, off the ground. And so we're heading for it. We're going about 40 miles an hour, which is insanely fast in 68 tons. And I can see that dip, bump, dip, bump, dip thing up ahead. The loader looks at me. This is the other guy named Govia. And he's like, you can tell him to slow down, right? I said, no, no, no. <laughs> and, and I just let him go. And it did just like it's supposed to. And on that third one, it did flew up in the air. Our boxes flew open. All our tools were like, we were like the zero gravity moment where everything was flying in the air. The tier, the tools had flown out the bags. They were all over the place. <laughs> and we landed and we had to stop and go pick up all our stuff and everything. And we pulled into our defensive position for later that night. And one of the armor decks that protects the engine, the engine compartment, we'd actually knocked it off the mounts and it was sitting sideways on the back of the tank. So they, they could be a lot of fun, just a lot of fun. That sounds awesome. So you drive the tank for a while, kind of move up, and you ended up being a tank commander, right? I ended up commanding my first tank when, before I was 21. I was 20 years old when I got my first tank command, and I was very blessed to have just been in the right place for these sort of circumstances to come together and been commanding them ever since. And... Uh, there's no better job I can think of. I loved it every minute I did it. Uh, I end up uh, getting wounded uh, roughly, tw you know, about 20 years after that. And uh, and then, you know, I had to move on and move out, out of the civilian world. You know, tank commanders, you got to identify targets 2,000 meters away. Right. And I'd have trouble doing it 20 meters away with my current eyesight. So I had to find a new line of work, you know. And that's, and that's just the way it goes. I, I love the Marine Corps. I love that we're the tough team. And if you can't locate, close with, and destroy the enemy, then it's time for you to move on to other pastures. Right. Yeah. So tell us about that transition. So um, you got in the military, so you got awarded your Silver Star recipient. Uh, yes, sir. And Purple Heart also. Yes. Um, that's the one you don't want. That's, that's the one you don't want, right. <laughs> one of the guys, I was at some, some dinner one time, and he said, yeah, we're all the guys who stood up and said what when somebody said duck. <laughs> I said that was a clever way to refer to the Purple Heart. That is clever, yeah. Um, Silver Star is no joke. That's that's a big accomplishment. That's awesome. I'm very proud of that. Yeah, that's a really big award in the military. Um, so you got done with the military and uh, 20 years, made it to gunnery sergeant. Gunnery sergeant. That's awesome. 
Um, and in the Marine Corps, that's that's a big role. That's a big leadership role. I, I, I love being a gunnery sergeant. You know, in the Marine Corps, we push a lot of leadership, like from from corporal, from corporal. And I was commanding tanks from when I was a corporal. So I, you know, so you you get a lot of a lot of responsibility from a very young age. But as a gunny, uh, there's a little bit of prestige about it. You know, when they when they have the the stereotypical. Marine leader in the movies, they always make him a gunny. So it's kind of a little bit of pride with that. And yeah, I was very proud to be a gunnery sergeant. Absolutely. That's awesome. So um, so when you got out, what happened next? Did you go straight into school or what did you end up doing? I went into college. Uh, I, on my way out the door to Marine Corps, I, I really had a, a physically diff, difficult time with the transition because I couldn't read or write. Uh, my vision had been messed up to the point that I got, you know, what the heck are you going to do if you can't read or write? And I'm trying to figure out what the heck am I going to do? And I'm trying to crunch numbers because I still had, uh, you know, I have two sons and I'm trying to crunch numbers. Can we pay our bills, you know, outside the Marine Corps? And I'm figuring, well, you know, at the very middle, I got a strong back. I could dig ditches. I could do general labor. And uh, then they had a VA program I went to, and it was an inpatient program at the VA hospital for blind rehabilitation to, to take the site you have and learn how to use it. And that was life-changing for me. And when I wow. went in there, the, uh, the the first guy, who his last name was Wood as well, by the way. Oh, the great name. Dr. Wood. And uh, <laughs> he talked to me and he said, well, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I, and, I, and I thought about what I had thought about before I got wounded. And I thought, well, you know, I'd been a drill instructor. I was a platoon sergeant most of my, you know, most of the end of my Marine Corps career. And you do a lot of instructing. And I'd always kind of thought about becoming a school teacher after, after the Marine Corps. Okay. And I told him, and I, I felt silly telling him that. I said, well, you know, I've, I've been a drone instructor. I figured I'd just I'd teach high school. I'll give him a few years earlier, you know. And I figured it would be really rewarding. And he said, well, what's your, what's your degree in? I said, well, I got nothing. PhD, public high school diploma. I got nothing, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and by the way, I can't read or write right now. And they said, no problem. And they went to work with me, and they taught me how to read, you know, sentences and turn those sentences into paragraphs, turn paragraphs into books. And now instead of, like, out doing PT, I'm doing reading therapy every day, and the, the instructors are working with me, and now we're timing how much I, how fast I can read. Uh, first computer I ever turned on in my life was in a VA hospital. They taught me how to become computer literate, how to type, you know, oh, skills awesome. I would need to be successful as a student. Right. And it was very life-changing for me. And uh, after a few months there, the uh, instructor, he would time me every day, and he came out there, and he says, all right, Nick, he says, you're at 140 words per minute. That's college-level reading speed. You're ready to go. So I packed my sea bag. I'm ready to head off to San Diego State University. And he says, well, came back to that a little bit later. He says, I may have misspoke. He says, 140 words per minute. It's actually about a sixth grade reading speed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but we figured you'd do all right anyway. And, and, and sure enough, you know, the military skill set you have makes you, very, makes you very good at being a student because you're very, you know, organized. You're very uh, disciplined on accomplishing assignments. You're very structured in how you approach things. Uh, you always look at things in terms of the the base of the pyramid. So whatever subject I was in, I would figure out what is my base of knowledge I need to know and then seek out those answers. And plus, being uh, about twice as old as <laughs> the student to my left or my right yeah. uh, was kind of fun because uh, uh, it was it was motivating in a way because there was a veteran organization on San Diego State, and I used to, you know, I, I would be involved with them somewhat. Right. And they would, you know, I'd hear like the younger veterans, the guys, you know, like the first termers who got out and they would say, they'd say, oh, you got these kids now. They don't even know there's a war going on. And look at them walking around, just smiling every day. And they'd be mad at them. 
And I said, well, that's what you serve for, <laughs> you know? I'm happy that, they, that, they, that that war is a million miles away as far as they're concerned. Yeah. And that's, that's why I served, was it so they, they can go there with a smile on their face and not have to worry about that sort of stuff, unless they choose to, unless they choose to raise their right hand and go do that. So I, I really enjoyed the, the, the campus environment. I would never, uh, I, had a, I had like a policy. I would never argue with the other students because they're young, they're figuring it out. And I, I would feel kind of like a bully. Yeah. You know, and, uh, but the, the instructors were always fair game. You know, the professors, <laughs> that, was, that was fair game. And then so I felt that that, that led to a really, really good education because I was old enough to have been around the block a little bit to have known when, when what they were saying just didn't quite jive with the, the world I seen every day. And then the fact that I was a history major really led for a lot of interesting uh oh, I bet a lot of interesting conversations a lot of interesting huh? conversations yeah yeah that's got to be interesting because i mean you're you just lived it right so um it, I, I skipped over something i wanted to ask you about but that's kind of a good segue is um you know part of the history that that you participated in right that's in the history books now is the war in iraq mm -hmm. right and so you were part of uh, the invasion and, and, and toppling uh, the Saddam mm -hmm. statue and all that stuff. Tell us a little bit of, about that. Well, that was, uh, that was, uh, and I'll, I'll approach it for, well, actually, I'll tie it all together to, to, to school because the pictures from there, my last semester, there was, I was just ready to get out and go start teaching and just kind of be done with this. So it was a class I participated very little in. It was called uh, American Foreign Relations Since World War One. And the textbook, there was a picture of me in the textbook at that Saddam statue oh, thing. No kidding. And I never told anybody, I never participated very little. And uh, one, of the, one of my fellow students, he said, uh, he said, his professor's name was Weeks. He said, Professor Weeks, he says, you know, Nick was, Nick's in that textbook right there. And he, t he told on me, so Professor Weeks said, well, Nick, now you have to participate. What do you think? And the class was very uh, anti-American, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it. Mm. And so what I did was I, I, I spoke and I said, you know, I see totalitarian regimes such as the one that was in, in Iraq before we went there, uh, socialism, communism, all these things as slavery, a form of slavery. And I said, if I'm a part of a part of a country that's willing to stand up and help somebody fight for their freedom, yeah, I'm happy to do that. I'm glad we did that. I'm proud to be part of a nation that does that sort of thing. That was about a five-minute version of what I just said, you know, longer version. Right. And, and perhaps quite a bit more eloquent, I hope. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, okay, and, and that seemed to make sense to him. And, and after that class, and it was like the second to last class of, the entire, of my entire college life, these kids, uh, there were like 30 of them in the student, uh, 30 students in the class. 30 of them were waiting outside the classroom when, when, that, when that session ended. And I walked out in the way, because there was a lot of anti-American stuff thrown yeah, around in that class. The, and one of the loudest, most... campuses, yeah, you know. And, you know, and, and it's their right to do. And one of the most vocal students walked up to me. And he had a whole line of them behind him. And he said, Nick, he said, I want to apologize to you for everything bad I said about the nation in this class. And I was so shocked that that, that, that was the, their reaction to what I had just said. Wow. And, pretty uh, big of them. Yeah, it was really nice. And uh, I, I'll never forget it. I thought it was one of the most moving things that happened when I was in school. And uh, so to kind of bring that back to where it was, the, the toppling of the Saddam statue, when we got to Baghdad and watching those citizens rise up, those, those Iraqi citizens, because we really didn't know much about them. I, I fought against their military in the original Gulf War. I fought against their military on this one on the march up to Baghdad. But... The citizens, once you got to know them, they, the Iraqi people are fantastic. 
They, they're amazing people. They're strong. They're, they're very funny. They're very upbeat. They're very motivated. They're very, they, they remind me a lot of, of like my fellow Marines. My fellow Marines were the sort of people, no matter how bad the situation is, they're always laughing about it. They're always smiling. They're always, they're always doing that positive mental attitude thing. And the Iraqi people are very similar because you've got a... Yeah, an oppressive life. So I mean, that's, a, that's good. You gotta, they've you had a very oppressive lining, life. Right? And, uh, you know, and then they've got a foreign military rolling over their country. And yet they would always be, any, any interaction I had with them, they were always very positive. They, were, they would always laugh. And I, I loved them for that. And seeing them rise up and tear that statue down, because all we did was help. You know, they just asked for help and we went over and helped them. And watching that, and, and when I watched those people celebrate, when that thing came down, because to them, these, these images of Saddam were everywhere. And they were a reminder, you don't, you don't speak out. Or a secret police come and pull your family away and do God knows what to them. Or we murder you in the middle of the night. I mean, that regime was horrible. Yeah. And when I watched them celebrate in downtown Baghdad, I mean, I realized what I was looking at. I was looking at freedom. I was looking at liberty at its just most grassroots level. You know, because ours had been paid for 245 years, years, 244 years ago. Right. To them, this is, this is their first taste of it. And it was, I was so proud I was so proud of my nation that this is the sort of thing we did. I was so proud to just be part of it. You know, we all like to think that what we do makes a difference, but there was one one time when you really seen it, seen it. Like what you're doing is actually making the world a better place directly. Yeah. And it was it was I was so proud to be part of it. That's really cool. And I think it's it's interesting how you you mentioned, you know, the toppling of that statue was something they wanted. Yes. You, you guys helped them, right? I mean, you had the, we, the physical means to help pull it down, right? But we, we had just set it in a defense, and the, the statues happened to be in the middle of the... It, they call it Ferdo Square, but it's actually a circle, and the statue's in the middle of the circle. And we just set a defense around it, oriented outboard. We're just waiting for our next, our next op order. And they started, because we were there, and because we had... It took on a symbolism to them. Yeah. And because we'd surround it, because they couldn't... You couldn't disrespect Saddam Hussein, not even an image of him. And now because we were there, they started disrespect. They started throwing their shoes at it, which in their culture is a very disrespectful thing to do. Then they started beating on the pedestal with a sledgehammer. With, you know, the pedestal's as wide as this room. They're never going to beat that. <laughs> They're going to do that. much with a hammer, yeah. So then they, we, a kid walked up to one of our vehicles and said, Mr. Mister, can you help us tear down the statue? And then that was when we went over and helped them out. That's cool. Yeah, I think, I think that part of the story, it, it, especially in the media, has been missing. Um, sure. <laughs> and, and I like, I like hearing that part of it because I don't know, I, I feel defensive about our military and, you know, a lot of the stuff that's happening in current, current news day that it kind of gets skewed a little bit as Absolutely. to the, the why behind some of this stuff that happens and, and you got to live it and we're right there on the street with very it. blessed, very blessed. Yeah, so that's, that's really cool. Well, um, yeah, I commend you for that. That's, that's just such a, a cool experience to have happened. We're very and, blessed. Yeah. Very lucky to have been there. And a lot of, we had like, uh, you know, because you're part of obviously bigger entities. I'm part of a, a, at that time, part of a tank company, part of a battalion sized task force, part of a regiment. So the guys who weren't on those couple blocks that got to be part of that, they, they always kind of gave us a hard time. Like, man, we were like two blocks away and we missed it. Right. <laughs> you know, it was just, I'm just very blessed that that was where I happened to end up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't control it. So, um, so. Okay, back to your, your wrapping up school. You got done at San Diego mm. State. Um, and history, did you go into teaching then? After? I did. I went in. I taught history for a little while. I taught history here in the state of California. 
Um, I, I always, I heard this from a lawyer and, and I kind of stole it. So this is my, this isn't my original expression, but I think nothing sums it up better than this is in California history, two plus two is anything greater than three and less than five. It's very <laughs> ambiguous. And I really didn't like that very much. So I, I applied for a position in uh, teach for America and I wanted to teach math. I want to teach algebra and, and luckily they accepted me and luckily I passed the, the exams because uh, in I end up teaching in the state of Arkansas in the Mississippi River Delta, in a very poor, oh. poor school district. And you just had to pass certain certain exams. And I didn't I I loved math, but I wasn't a math uh, major or minor or nothing right. in college. So I had to pass these exams. So I went to the, the veterans house on San Diego State University and I said, is there anybody who can uh, you got a math tutor in here? Anybody can tutor me in math. Fellow walks out, I introduce myself. I said, I'm Nick Poppett. She says, I know who you are, Gunny. And I thought, okay, you know, because I've done a couple of things local, maybe I pass and cross. And I said, where do, I, where do, you, where do we know each other from? And uh, he said, I'm a Fox Company recruit. He was one of the recruits from when I was a drill instructor. No way. Oh, <laughs> and I, said, cool. oh, I said, this is going to be a dream come true for you. You're going to be able to yell at me. You can go nuts just as long as I pass <laughs> that test. And he got me through the test. He was a great, uh, great instructor. That's great cool. Instructor. Yeah. That's really awesome. And uh, so I taught algebra, and again, and now in algebra, two plus two is four. And uh, and algebra was such a unique thing, and uh, I, I loved it. And I would try and teach it to the students in this manner. I would, I would always base everything on the equation. And see, the equation, is, the equation is a statement of fact. This is the same as this. And that there's no changing that. There's no cultural bias to that. There's no, uh, there's no two ways about it. This is the same as this. These are equal. So whatever you do to the, you know, then I would do it in terms of a seesaw and, uh, you know, various ways to contextualize it. Yeah. And, uh, but, I, but I will kind of close that chapter a little bit, that teaching in the Department of Education was not the experience I had expected it to be. I had uh, I thought of my various teachers I'd had coming up through school and how influential they were to me and how much I had learned from them. Uh, Mr. Hyam from my, my middle school, He's, he was my algebra teacher when I was in uh, eighth grade. And he, used to, he was such a great guy. He was uh, just, a, just a great instructor. And he was such a blue-collar guy. He just had a blue-collar way of teaching academics that, that I, always, I always reacted to. My father was a factory worker. So somehow Mr. Hyam always talked on my level. He used to joke because he, he used to talk about how poor teachers were all the time. He was so funny with that. He'd come in with his, with his sack lunch and he'd say, bologna sandwich, working man steak, he used to call it. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of stolen that expression and used it for the rest of my life. But uh, the new, um, the Department of Education is a lot less uh, direct instruction now. It's a lot more what they call student-based learning, discovery learning, uh, things like that. And I kind of ideologically disagreed with that. I think the greatest advantage we have as a species is our ability to collectively learn. And if I know something, why wouldn't I just teach it to you? Right. Why would I make you discover how to build fire when I already know how to make it? Right. Right. <laughs> it's the advantage we have over the animals. It's, it's the greatest species uh, advantage we have is the ability to collectively learn. And the Department of Education really wants you to discover how to make fire rather than somebody teach you how to make fire. And I didn't really care for that. So I moved from that into teaching adults. And uh, I applied for a position at uh, Tesla Motors. They, uh, they were <laughs> fortunate they took a chance on me, which was really, it was really fun in the interview process because I had no background in manufacturing. I worked at the car plant where, where they built the cars. Okay. And uh, I had no background in manufacturing. 
And so when I got to the interview, it was really good because I would, I would contextualize things. Because uh, the big thing in manufacturing is something they call lean manufacturing. How to eliminate waste. How to take seconds out of a process. Because every second you save in a process, when you extrapolate that out over a million cars, turns into $10 million you know, per yeah. second you can take out of that process. So they said, well, how, you don't have any background in manufacturing. And I would tell them about a tank fight. Seconds or lives in a tank fight. You got two tanks shooting at each other with 100 plus millimeter cannons. Every second that you can trim off of your engagement time, if you can trim more seconds off of your time than they can trim off of theirs, you win. They they lose. Right. And that's, you know, and it's, you're talking dollars. I'm talking lives and minds. So we took it very seriously. And all the things I learned in the military very well translated into lean manufacturing. They were the exact same concepts. We just didn't call them that. And they have efficiency management systems in the factory. There's one that's it's pretty much universal called 5S. Uh, sort, set, and order, shine, standardize, sustain. That's everything you do in the military is exactly done right. in that process. Translates perfectly. It translates perfectly. And uh, so I found a home in Tesla Motors. And I really absolutely love teaching adults a lot more than... Uh, teaching for the Department of Education. I'll, I'll, let me just keep it in a positive. I love working for Tesla Motors more so than the other version. Sure, of it. yeah, I get it. That's really cool. I mean, working for Tesla is probably something that you never imagined this tech car company, right? <laughs> it's a very fun factory. It's because uh, it's, it's very similar to the military. They, they really believe in uh, pushing responsibility to very low levels, which is really great. That's very, very similar to the military. Very empowering. They believe in positive mental attitude, that everything is a matter of, uh, of, of, of uh, getting the best out of people. And they definitely believe in uh, purposes higher than yourself, believing in things higher than yourself. Like in the factory, they would have all-hands meetings, very similar to the military. We would get everybody together, and he would talk about why, we do, why we're doing this. Like whatever initiative we were doing, he would talk about how it pertained to making the world a better place. Uh, and it, ideologically, I might disagree with some of that stuff, but I certainly, I certainly agree with the premise that you get everybody believing there's some bigger purpose to what you're doing, and you try a little bit harder. You do a little bit better job. You, yeah. you form together in a tighter team. You unify. Yeah. And so it was a, it was a great home. I, I loved every minute I worked in that factory. That's cool. So you were up in the Bay Area doing that, right? I did that in the Bay Area for a few years. Uh, I'm, I'm getting a little long in the tooth these days, so the 70-hour work weeks were getting a little, they were getting a little rough. And so there was a point where uh, my wife and I, we had a talk and we said, you know, at some point, let's cut bait and go back to San Diego. So we set a goal. Um, and in this case, it was a certain, uh, well, that's got a little more private, sure, yeah. private. but we, we'd set a financial uh, benchmark of sorts. Get back here. And then when we reached that benchmark, we, we pulled chalks and it was... Uh, it was uh, it was really fun because the the work for my team at that time I was working in a place called Chassis Two and Chassis Three, which is where they put the battery onto the car and put the tires on it and do a few other put the front end on it. Okay. And I was supervising a team of about about fifty people, fifty fifty associates. And uh, when I gave my notice, it, they they were just the, the greatest they were just the greatest team ever. And they gave me just the best send off. I, I'll, I'll never forget it. They uh, it was <laughs> like a, like a few days left. And they told me, like, they, you know, it was their, their lunchtime. 
And they, they created some ruse like why I needed to go somewhere. And when I went there, they'd had a cake and all this stuff. And this is really just the nicest send-off anybody could give you. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really great. I mean, it's it's just great to be with great people. And, yeah. And clearly they had a lot of admiration for you too, so. Well, they, they, it was mutual. Yeah. They, they were just, uh, you know, it was like a... <laughs> When when you when we'd start shift, we have a pre-shift meeting, and I'd bring it. It was like a football huddle, you know. And I I'd, I'd holler and they'd yell back, and we'd get all this motivation fired up to go out and build cars, you know. But it was <laughs> it was fun. It was a lot of fun. That's cool, man. We get to tap into some of that drill instructor time yeah. there a little bit and get your voice back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's really fun. So down in San Diego now, and um, just living the dream down here, right? We were talking about Southern California a little bit and how. How we love San Diego and stuff. Oh, this is a, this is an amazing community. I, I love San Diego. Uh, we live in South Bay. We live down in a place called Chula Vista, which a cameraman uh, went to high, went to high school with one of my sons. And uh, so South Bay, San Diego is just a fantastic community. Great, great people live there. Uh, great weather. Call it the weather tax here. I'm sure you, you yeah. deal with that quite a bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we pay the weather tax. And uh, we we were very blessed when. Uh, when we were looking for a home, that was when the housing crash of uh, like 2008, I believe, was that's what we bought was in 2008, and uh, Chula Vista, the community we live in, was one of those very hard hit by the by the the, the crash, the housing crash. Yeah. So on the block we bought on, three out of every four houses were bank owned. It was just it was Crazy. Uh, it, it was terrible how how badly it had crashed there, but. As with everything, you know, if you're if you're in the right place, right time, and you're willing to make a make a go of the right thing, we end up buying into a house that we never would have been able to afford under normal circumstances, and so did all our neighbors. So all our neighbors are very similar to us. They're all people who very much love the homes they're in because they never never would have got them under any other circumstance. Right. And so there's a lot of pride of ownership in our community. We're all people who uh, very much look out for each other. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Did you, get, did you use your VA loan? To I did. I used my VA Atta loan. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And, um, and I can see why people would really trust you because that was very important for us too because we, I, my family, we lived in base housing our whole lives. So we, with when the first, like when we first bought it because it was bank, it was bank owned, there was a lot of little wrench turning had to happen. On yeah, that. there's a lot. Yeah. And the water heater went out like early on and I'd had some, I had another appointment later that day and I told him, I said, no, no, I gotta, I gotta change my water heater out. He's like, well, that's a, that's an hour project. I said, well, for you, it's an hour project. I've been, in, I've been in base housing my whole life for me. I'm going to learn this I've whole thing. Houses, yeah. I have to learn how to do this. So it's been a lot of fun learning all these things that I had never learned like through the first, you know, for a man of my age, I should have known a lot more about a house than I did. But living in base housing, you don't you don't touch nothing on a house. You just clean it and maintain the lawn. You don't. They, when some breaks, you call you call the base. They don't want you ripping out drywall and stuff right. like that in a base house. Right, right. So it was a lot of fun learning all that stuff. And uh, but oh, back to back to what I what I started with that was we never we were in our mid forties and buying our first home. And, and especially following a housing crash with the predator loans, that being like a big thing, yeah. we like, we had to find somebody we trusted. And so we found this, uh, he was a retired Marine officer and he, and he worked in the industry. He was a realtor, but like, we had to find somebody we trust, somebody from the family, right? somebody we knew right. who knew us, understood us, understood what our questions were going to be. And so I can see why, why people would turn to you that, that somebody from the family is somebody you can trust. Cause there's a 
there's a the, the contracts you have to you have to know what you're looking at to, to decipher them. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of people we call it uh, commission breath. You know, there's a lot of a lot of people in the industry that just have commission breath, right? And that's they just see dollar signs, <laughs> and um, and so yeah, I mean it's like you know I predicate my business on just you know really serving our military people awesome and just helping right because well I just done. I just treat them how I would want to be treated like when they ask me questions I explain it to them the way that I would want to hear it right and I take the the sales out of it um, because it doesn't do me any good to force someone to buy a house or, or get financing right if it ends up being a bad decision for them because it's just going to come tenfold back to me right so may as well just treat them right do it right the first time and sometimes that means no shouldn't right and but that advice doesn't come from everyone that's in this commission only world because they got that commission breath, right? I think that'll return tenfold on you. I mean, uh, the, uh, uh, an honest handshake and an honest and uh, an honest eye to eye transaction, business transaction that that's lasting. It's never forgotten. And uh, and I know those individuals I talked about. I'll trust them for the rest of my life. Whatever it is they do, whatever other businesses they have, and I'll send my friends their way because that's that's the sort of business that American business should be in. Is, is honest Agreed. people, integrity. And that's, yeah. that's what separates veterans from, well, I won't say separates, but it's very important in our world. Yeah, I think it's, it's common, right? It's, it's common in our Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes it, when I was a young that man, trust factor a little easier to attain. When I was a young NCO, when I was a corporal, uh, this first sergeant, first sergeant Carroll. Well, I, I sure hope he'd watch his podcast. <laughs> well, he sure we'll hated, send it to him. He hated this side of me when I was a young. And, and and as I grew older in leadership positions, I understand why he hated me. Was that I hadn't quite learned a lot of the character lessons that I that I would ultimately learn from him. A lot of them from him. And when he would have these NCO meetings, he used to ask us all the time, "What was the most important leadership trait?" And I would say things like courage. I would say uh, knowledge. If you don't know what the heck you're doing, who the heck's going to follow you? You know, if you, if you don't have the courage to do, you know, and all this stuff. And he would say, no, integrity. He would always say integrity. And, and I was like, what the heck's he talking about? And as I grew older in life, I, I grew to realize that's absolutely right. If people can't trust the words coming out your mouth, they, there's nothing else that will matter. And when I went into education, if you don't base things on fact, if you don't base things on things that are true, you're building whatever knowledge you build, you're building on a house of sand, on a house of cards. It's just nothing. Yeah. Integrity's got to be the foundation of everything. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And uh, for Sergeant Carroll, uh, he, he, he beat that lesson into me pretty harshly. <laughs> I mean, it's an important life lesson. And what's cool, too, is just like just these different mentors and teachers and things we had in our lives sure. that, that left such a big impact, right? And I, as you're mentioning teachers' names, I'm thinking of teachers' names like from high school and stuff like mm. that that made impacts on me and, and my drill instructor and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's cool, it's cool to be able to carry these life lessons. And, you know, and I'm going to give one more shout-out to another teacher of mine. Miss McDonald, she was an English teacher of mine in high school. And her, they, they, we had two McDonald's. He, the, the husband was my shop teacher and the wife was my English teacher. And uh, Miss McDonald, we would debate. We'd have debates in this class. And one of the things she did was she would always find out, like she'd say, like, let's say we'd debate like topics, whatever they were. Like, let's say we're debating uh, pro-life, pro-choice. She'd say, what is it you believe? And whatever it was you believed, she would make you be on the side of the opposite side. You would have to, if you were pro-choice, you would have to be on the pro-life team. And if you were on the pro-life side, you'd have to be on the pro-choice team. I, I just give that as an example. I can't remember what the specific topics were we would debate it. Yeah. But whatever it was, you would always have to debate the opposite side of what your core belief was. 
That helped me with everything else I would ever do in life, and especially of being a Marine. People talk about critical thinking, the, the, the ability to be able to look at something from somebody else's perspective. Every, every town I went into in the combat zone, every, every movement to contact I did, I would always look at it in terms of, if I was that guy, how would I kill me? How would it, what would I do? Yeah. Or if I was that citizen on the street, how would I see me? Or when I was a teacher, if I was that student sitting in that, in that chair, what would be important to me? How would, I, how would I perceive this instruction happening right here? If I was turning that wrench in that factory, how would I, what would be important to me? And the ability to look at that from the other guy's perspective. Miss McDonald making us debate those other sides, life change. Made me a better Marine, made me a better everything I did in life. Yeah, that's huge. Great life lessons. Well, um, I think we got to wrap it up today. And this has been awesome, man. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. I had a lot of fun. Thank about you. you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And um, thank you so much for coming by, being on the Armed and Ready podcast. And um, we'll, take, we'll check out next time. Yeah, thanks for having me aboard. You bet. Thank you so much for listening today to the Armed and Ready podcast. If you have any questions about anything we talked about today, we'd be happy to get to you. You could reach me at valoneguy.us. Have a good one.